This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start off reading from Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article from JTA, Two Jewish Wisconsin judges denounced a Trump lawsuit. Now anti-Semites are harassing them. By Ben Sales. One commenter said Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Joe Karofsky was hook-nosed and posted a corresponding anti-Semitic caricature of her. Another called her a terrorist and said she should have a massive fatal heart attack on live TV. Her colleague Rebecca Dallet was called a traitor by a Facebook commenter who also warned that justice, uh, the justice that the best case scenario for you is that you actually get a trial. When the people rise up, that won't happen. Those are examples of the torrent of misogynistic anti-Semitic messages that Karofsky and Dalit have received online in the days after they denounced and then voted to reject an attempt by President Donald Trump's lawyers to invalidate hundreds of thousands of votes in their state. The Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi publication, published an article about the two judges last Sunday, calling them an elite Jew sitting next to another Jew determining the course of our government. Karofsky was a target of Trump's Twitter ire earlier this year as well, when he baselessly claimed her election to the court was fraudulent. A campaign consultant for the justices who shared those posts and others with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency said they have received dozens of messages with obscene language in the days since the case was argued and decided in court. The court rejected the lawsuit in a 4-3 decision Monday, the same day that the Electoral College affirmed Joe Biden's victory in the November election. Karofsky and Dalit declined to speak with JTA, but the campaign consultant, Sachin Cheda, said both are concerned for their safety and have been in touch with law enforcement. The volume and intensity of the feedback they're getting has hit a new level, Cheda said. It is more vile, it is more racist, it is more gendered, it is more threatening than what we have seen in the past. Both justices, who were seen as part of the court's liberal minority, had lambasted the arguments made in court by Trump's lawyer, Jim Troupas, last Saturday. The suit had asked the court to throw out 221,000 early and absentee votes in Dane and Milwaukee counties, which are Democratic strongholds with large non-white populations. Karofsky told Troupas that the lawsuit was un-American and smacks of racism. What you want is for us to overturn this election so that your king can stay in power, Karofsky said, according to the Associated Press. I do not know how you can come before this court and possibly ask for a remedy that is unheard of in U.S. history. Dallet asked why the suit focused on the most non-white urban parts of the state, according to the publication Law and Crime. Wisconsin has some 30,000 Jews in a state population of 6 million. Several of the state's most prominent officials in recent years have been Jewish, including former Senators Herb Cole and Russ Feingold. The former Chief Justice of its state Supreme Court was Shirley Abramson, who is Jewish, and Dalit was elected to the court in 2018. In April, when Karofsky soundly defeated a Republican incumbent and an election to the court, Trump tweeted in all caps that her victory was rampant with fraud. 
Republicans also had sought to tighten voting requirements in that vote. At the time, Karofsky's win was seen as a possible harbinger of the state swinging Democratic in November, a prediction that was borne out. In August, Karofsky was sworn into office during an ultra-marathon, a 100-mile run by Dalit, who is also a runner. The court's justices serve 10-year terms. Menorah at Dartmouth shot, uh, Menorah at Dartmouth shot with pellets in latest Hanukkah attack by Ben Sales. A public menorah at Dartmouth College was shot with a pellet gun in the latest anti-Semitic incident during the holiday of Hanukkah. Rabbi Moshe Gray, who runs the campus Chabad Center with his wife Hani, said he discovered the vandalism Wednesday evening as he prepared to turn on the menorah's electric lights for the holiday's seventh night. Holes from a pellet gun had broken seven of the menorah's nine lights. He says he knew it was a targeted attack on the menorah, which stands in a central location on campus because a nearby Christmas tree was left unharmed. Nothing like this has ever happened. In the couple's 17 years on campus, he told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency Thursday, Dartmouth is pretty quiet when it comes to things like this. It was pretty shocking to come to the realization that somebody on purpose shot the menorah. There are about 400 Jews amid a total Dartmouth student body of 4,000, according to the school's Hillel. In a letter to the school community, Dartmouth President Philip J. Hanlon called the the vandalism an affront to all. To the Jewish members of our community at Dartmouth and beyond, we stand with you in anger and sadness at this despicable act, which is much more than vandalism or a prank, for it seeks to diminish the rich culture and history of the Jewish people, he wrote. This is the most recent in a string of anti-Semitic incidents during this Hanukkah. At a Chabad menorah lighting in Kentucky, someone shouting anti-Semitic slurs from a car ran over a man's leg. The website of a Long Island Jewish high school was hacked and defaced by neo-Nazis. A menorah was also vandalized in California. Gray said he was heartened by the response from the Dartmouth community. More than 100 people showed up either virtually or in person despite heavy snowfall, to light the campus menorah Thursday night. The menorah can be lit with actual fire, a function it still has despite the attack. And Gray mused about printing t-shirts for Chabad that read, When they bring the darkness, we bring the light. This is what we do in Chabad, he said. We dedicated our lives to spreading Judaism and spreading kindness. He added, next year we'll probably get a bigger menorah. Jewish senator says Trump's immigration policy recreated paper wall that kept Jews out of U.S. in the 1930s. Senator Ron Wyden, a son of Jewish parents who escaped Nazi Germany for the United States, compared President Donald Trump's immigration policy to that of the restrictive U.S. policy in the 1930s. During that era, many Jewish immigrants trying to flee Germany were blocked from coming to America. The president has rebuilt the infamous paper wall like that of the 1930s that kept too many Jews out of the United States, trapping them within the murderous regime of Nazi Germany, Wyden, a 71-year-old Oregon Democrat, said Tuesday in a speech on the Senate floor. In 2020, caring people look back and recognize that paper wall and our failure to save more people from extinction at the hands of the Nazis. It was a staggering humanitarian disaster, a real stain on American history. Trump's immigration policy, spearheaded by Jewish advisor Stephen Miller, 
include a ban on travelers and immigrants from more than a dozen Muslim-majority countries and a zero-tolerance approach to migrants who tried to cross the southern border, which led to hundreds of family separations. The U.S. Senate passed a bill that would elevate the position of anti-Semitism monitor to ambassador, adding punch to the envoy's mission of pressing other governments to confront anti-Jewish bigotry. Anti-Semitism continues to rise in an alarming rate across the globe. Senator Jackie Rosen, Democrat of Nevada, who led sponsorship of the bipartisan bill, said in a statement Wednesday after the vote, which passed unanimously. To equip the State Department to better address rising anti-Semitism, it is critical that we elevate the role of the Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism to ambassador at large. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a similar bill last year, meaning it is almost certain to become law before the year ends and the current Congress lapses. A broad array of Jewish groups backed the measure. With the status of ambassador, the envoy will have easier access to the Secretary of State, increased funding, and the office's recommendations are likelier to be seen overseas as having the backing of the administration of the day. This legislation provides the Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism with the tools, resources, and gravitas necessary to apply much-needed pressure on foreign governments to create more tolerant societies as part of their relationships with the United States, Hadassah said in a statement. The Orthodox Union said the Senate is providing powerful new tools to the State Department to lead an impactful, uh, to lead impactful international efforts to combat what has been aptly called the world's oldest form of hatred. The position of anti-Semitism monitor was created by Congress in 2004. President Donald Trump named three White House aides to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council, including the son of his lawyer Rudy Giuliani, on Wednesday. Along with Andrew Giuliani, who works in the Office of Liaison, which interacts, uh, interacts with interest groups, the others named to the voluntary posts are Mitchell Weber, a lawyer in the office of the White House Counsel, and Nick Luna, Trump's body man or personal attendant. The five-year appointment to the council, which governs and funds the Holocaust Museum on the National Mall, is considered one of the most thankless honors a president can confer. The 55 members chosen by the president are typically close to a sitting president, and have an interest in Jewish affairs or human rights. Council members are expected to fundraise for the museum. Only Weber, who is Jewish and wrote about Jewish and Israeli issues for the conservative New York Sun over a decade ago, seems to have any record of experience in those areas. As council, he has joined White House calls to Jewish community leaders. Andrew Giuliani is among, uh, among the few aides who have lasted throughout the presidency is seen as close to Trump, in part because Trump has known him since infancy and also the president is said to enjoy golfing with the former New York mayor's son. Giuliani, whose designated special interest group in the public liaison office is the sports community, at one point aspired to be a professional golfer. The elder Giuliani has led the legal charge underpinning Trump's baseless claims that last month's voting was fraudulent, and Trump actually won the election. It is my honor to serve on the board of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Council, Andrew Giuliani said on Twitter, 
At a time when religious freedom is increasingly threatened and anti-Semitism is on the rise, we must always remember the atrocities of the Holocaust and teach our children that government should never impede our individual right to practice religion. Luna is a former actor who, filmed, uh, who featured in films like Sammy and Sherlock Can't Get Any. The Internet Movie Database summarizes the movie as a stoner couple spends the day trying to score weed in their dry suburban town. His LinkedIn page says he trained in comedy. Luna and Giuliani, father and son, have tested positive in recent weeks for the coronavirus. I don't hate you. Rashida Tlaib defends her relationship with Jews on a panel of anti uh, on a panel on anti-Semitism by Ben Sales. At a panel on anti-Semitism, four speakers known for their outspoken criticism of Israel, including Representative uh, Rashida Tlaib, said that they themselves do not hate Jews. Tell everybody, I don't hate you. I absolutely love you, said Tlaib, a Palestinian-American and Democrat from Michigan, who supports the movement to boycott Israel. If anybody comes through my doors or through any forum to try to push anti-Semitism forward, you will hear me being loud with my bullhorn to tell them to get the hell out. The panel had sparked substantial criticism from Jewish commentators and pro-Israel activists when it was announced. Both were giving anti-Zionists a platform to discuss anti-Semitism and for being majority non-Jewish. Barry Weiss, the former New York Times opinion writer and editor, tweeted, So dismantling anti-Semitism is actually about dismantling accusations of anti-Semitism. An all-Jewish panel with a similar title called Dismantling Anti-Semitism, Jews Talk Justice, is being hosted the night after by the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement, a coalition of nearly 300 groups, most of them Jewish. Tuesday's panel, hosted by the political and advocacy arm of the anti-Zionist group Jewish Voice for Peace, included, along with Tlaib, Mark Lamont Hill, a Temple University professor, Barbara Ransby, a University of Illinois at Chicago professor, and Peter Bernard, the Jewish essayist known for his writing on Israel. Hill and Ransby have also endorsed the movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel, known as BDS. Beinart recently made waves for an essay calling for a single binational Israeli-Palestinian state in place of Israel, a stark departure from his decade of advocacy for a two-state solution. Tlaib supports a binational state as well. The panel, called Dismantling Anti-Semitism, Winning Justice, was moderated by Rabbi Alyssa Wise, a longtime Jewish Voice for Peace leader. The panelists on Tuesday all rejected the notion that pro-Palestinian advocacy, including support for an Israeli boycott, constitutes anti-Semitism. They all said that anti-Semitism comes predominantly from the right and agreed that it is best fought by allying with other oppressed groups in solidarity. Palestinians that advocate for Palestinian rights are not the enemy, those of us who advocate for BDS as a strategy to advance the rights of disenfranchised and exiled Palestinians are not the enemy, Ransby said. The enemy is the kind of people who go into a synagogue in California, north of San Diego, and open fire to do deadly damage, a reference to the synagogue shooting in Poway, California last year. 
In a fundamental way, of course, we want a more just world for everyone, she added later. The event included plenty of criticism of Israel's treatment of Palestinians. At one point, Radsby likened the dilemma over criticizing Israel while fighting anti-Semitism to, be, uh, to the dilemma African-American leftist activists faced over whether to criticize Robert Mugabe, the Zimbabwean anti-colonial activist who became a dictator. My side of the debate argued that no, we have an obligation to speak out because we had understood the struggle that he came out of, she said. Obviously, there are historical differences, but I think of that in terms of how we viewed the silencing around discussing Israel and who has a right to critique and who has an obligation to critique. The panel did include acknowledgement of anti-Semitism on the left, Hill, who was unable to attend the live event because of his father's death but shared pre-recorded responses, praised Jews who had worked with him in activist movements and said people need to call out anti-Semitism in their own ideological camps. I not only became aware of anti-Semitism as an idea, but I began to hear it and see it in practice, he said. There were moments when I would be in movements or be in meetings. I'd be reading a book or pamphlet or literature and I would hear the way Jewish people were being smeared. He added, I became keenly aware of how dangerous it is if we do nothing to stand in solidarity against anti-Semitism, to stand in solidarity with Jewish people as they fight for freedom, safety, dignity, and self-determination. Beinart, who has argued for years that the Jewish community needs to welcome anti-Zionists, Anti-Zionist said he believes that by the same token, Zionist Jews should not be excluded from progressive spaces. He also spoke of the need to combat anti-Semitism on the left. It's very important that as we fight against the greatest anti-Semitic threat, which is the threat from the white nationalist right, that we also show a great concern to make sure that progressive movements are not tainted by anti-Semitism, he said. Beinart later defended the credentials of his co-panelists, who have all been accused of anti-Semitism for their views on Israel. I know that they are. Uh, there are probably a lot of people who are watching this who came to watch it because they don't like the folks on this panel, he said. Listen to the folks on this panel and what they said. Do they sound like people who hate Jews to you? Trust your gut. And next from JTA, an oversized wedding in Chicago has divided Orthodox Jews and foiled contact tracers by Shira Hanau. Officials in the Chicago area are struggling to uncover whether an Orthodox Jewish wedding that violated public health restrictions led to new COVID-19 cases in the hard-hit city. About 150 guests attended the wedding in a Chicago suburb December 2nd, at a time when 14.8% of COVID tests in the surrounding county were coming back positive. The wedding made local news as the latest in a series of events in Orthodox communities that have defied public health guidance and local ordinances. But public health officials charged with tracking the spread of the coronavirus said last week that they had been unable to obtain a list of guests who would need to quarantine or even the name of the bride and groom. This is the time that we really need that information, and we're still trying to gather it, said Dr. Rachel Rubin, senior public health medical officer at the Cook County Department of Public Health, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency on December 9th. 
By the following day, the health department had issued citations to the event planner and caterer who made the wedding happen and obtained a partial list of attendees whom the department would advise to be tested for COVID and quarantined until they received the results. With more than a week since the event, however, any cases uh, contracted there already could have begun to spread, making the possible impact of the wedding even greater and harder to contain. Many members of the local Orthodox community have grown increasingly frustrated. Most people have been following the rules, they say, but the community's ability to keep schools and synagogues open is jeopardized by the relative few who appear not to be taking the pandemic seriously. It's become an event that's associated with stigma and taboo and has created a sense of real division within the community, said Manya Treese, the founder of a contact tracing initiative for Chicago's Orthodox Jews. The wedding and its aftermath also underscored the degree to which internal tensions in the Orthodox community may be impeding efforts to dissuade large gatherings at this stage of the pandemic. In April, when another large wedding drew a crowd, also in violation of public health restrictions, local Orthodox rabbinical organizations released a statement condemning the gathering. But Rabbi Yaakov Robinson, head of the Agudath Israel Midwest Division and a spiritual leader at Base Medras Mikor HaChayim, a local Orthodox synagogue, said there would likely be no statement this time. Robinson declined to be interviewed, but said in an email to JTA that media coverage of last week's wedding served as a deterrent on its own. We are trying to avoid too many solemn, strict, and harsh letters to the community, the rabbi wrote. It has been emotionally tolling, and by and large, the community is doing great. It is time to let them heal. We are focusing more on messages of strength and hope. Several fixtures of the Orthodox wedding circuit were involved in the event, which took place at the Hilton Chicago Northbrook. The event planner A&E Events and the caterer Circle Catering both received official citations last week from the Cook County Department of Public Health, although there are no penalties associated with the citations. Both declined to comment. A wedding featured on Instagram a few days after the wedding date credited the caterer and party planner and also said that Yaakov uh, Shuki, the Orthodox singer who this summer reworked one of his most popular songs to be a pan to President Donald Trump, had performed. The caterer is supervised by the Kashrut arm of the Chicago Rabbinical Council, meaning a kosher supervisor from the council would have to oversee the preparation of the food at the catering kitchen as well as the event itself. Rabbi Sholem Fishbane, head of the council's Kashrut division, said the organization left legal issues like the public health rules concerning events to the venue, saying it was not the organization's area of expertise. The CRCs always relied on the hotel to guarantee that all the laws that go into a venue are met, and we just come in and make sure the food is kosher, Fishbane said, adding that we don't get into things we're not experts in. The Hilton Chicago Northbrook apologized for hosting the event in a statement and said the public health rules governing the events were less restrictive when the event was originally being planned. Indeed, during most of the summer and early fall, Illinois restricted gatherings in most places to 50% of a room's capacity or 50 people, whichever was smaller. But in late November, with cases rising, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker imposed new restrictions barring hotels and other event spaces from hosting events indoors. With the approximately 150 guests, the wedding was larger than would have been allowed over the summer, too. 
though it was smaller than the typical pre-pandemic Orthodox wedding. Although masks are required for indoor events, video taken by the CVS television station in Chicago showed that many guests at the wedding did not wear them. A member of the local Orthodox community said he had spoken to a number of people attending the wedding under the impression that more safety precautions would be taken. There are a lot of people that made assumptions that were bad, the community member said. The wedding took place at a time of intense disease spread within Chicago and the entire state of Illinois, and with the Chicago Jewish community were threatened to close schools and synagogues. If you have a large wedding, it has a big potential to be a super spreader event, said Dr. Ben Katz, a professor of pediatrics at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and an expert in infectious diseases who has been involved in local efforts to open schools and synagogues safely in Chicago. While Katz said he had no data on new cases related to the wedding, he suspected it could have been contributing to new cases last week. I know that there's been a lot more cases in some of the schools recently, he said Friday. Where those cases are coming from is up to contract tracers to recover. Across the country, tracers hired by cities and states report running into roadblocks when those they reach decline to detail their contacts. In New Jersey, for example, Governor Phil Murphy said last week that 74% of people contacted by the tracers did not cooperate declining to answer questions about their activities or provide names of contacts. That was the case, too, in Chicago, where contact tracers initially ran into a brick wall when following up on the local news, uh, local news reports of the wedding. Though they eventually obtained a partial guest list, local public health officials initially struggled to get the list from the event planner, delaying any attempts to contact guests and advise them to be tested for COVID and quarantine until receiving the results. Knowing that community members may be wary of cooperating with government investigators, Treese launched an anonymous contact tracing initiative for Chicago's Orthodox Jews earlier this year. But Treese also said she had received little information about the wedding, saying, I'm equally in the dark. Treese added that no one who was sick and reported their contacts to Community Counter had reported attending the wedding. For now, community members are holding their breath, hoping that the wedding does not fuel the spread of the disease among their neighbors and that no further illegal gatherings take place at a time when the ability to operate is precarious for schools and synagogues. So far, they've been staying open, said Katz, the pediatrician, but a repeat of the large wedding last week could jeopardize that. Some schools already were uh, nearing a possible shutdown. I think something like this does raise the chance of having to close the schools, he said. And next from JTA, online anti-Semitism peaks during moments of national tension, and it's being partly driven by Russian trolls, by Ben Sales. Soon after the 2017 far-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, a Twitter user going by the name JOJOH888 knew who was to blame for the clashes between neo-Nazis and the Antifa activists who opposed them. George Soros, the Jewish billionaire and progressive philanthropist. George Soros is the puppet master. He's funding both sides, the account tweeted, echoing a false claim expressed frequently by far-right activists. JOJOH888 was a Russian troll controlled by Vladimir Putin's government that was suspended in 2018 in an effort to root out disinformation from Twitter. 
to the Network Contagion Research Institute, which studies how hate manifests on social media. The tweet was a perfect encapsulation of how anti-Semitism is now showing up online. A new report by the Institute illustrates how anti-Semitism has been a feature of the widely publicized Russian disinformation campaigns surrounding American elections and other moments of social tension, with an eye towards sowing division in the United States by way of social media. The anti-Jewish slurs from Russian accounts dovetail with increased online anti-Semitism around significant dates like Election Day or Inauguration Day, or during periods of crisis like the Charlottesville rally or the ongoing pandemic. These tropes are used very reliably by anti-democratic forces at very specific times, Joel Finkelstein, the Institute's co-founder, told the JTA. They're used in order to sow doubt into the institutions of democracy, elections, inaugurations, foreign interventions, and during social unrest, and in viruses and epidemics. Tracking such posts can help social media platforms create an early warning system in response to surges in anti-Jewish disinformation, the report said. The study examines some 250 million posts on four online extremist communities, the social network Gab, the message board 4chan, the now-defunct pro-Donald Trump Reddit community, The Donald, and the ecosystem of Russian trolls on Twitter. By analyzing the rhetorical context in which extremists online use anti-Semitic buzzwords, it maps out how and where anti-Jewish hatred appears in fringe communities. The disinformation by which Jews have been presented throughout history as the scourge of humanity has been expressed in terms of threats to religion, science, power, dominant ethnic groups, nation-states, and in more modern iterations as threats to human rights and racial justice, the report said. With the advent of social media, these ancient viral conspiracy themes are able to spread more quickly and more easily than at any point in history. The report, like previous studies on anti-Semitism, shows how the hatred largely works by using code words rather than explicitly mentioning Jews. Instead of writing about the Jews as a whole, online anti-Semites target individuals like Soros or the Rothschild family, place three parentheses around names of people who are Jewish or ostensibly controlled by devious Jews, or apply age-old Jewish smears such as the blood libel, to the state of Israel. The report also shows that anti-Semitic tropes are an animating feature of extremist activism and tend to peak online, along with other divisive rhetoric, during tense moments in the United States. For example, while there are some 2,000 or 3,000 tweets about Soros posted on an average day, according to the report that number spiked to more than 14,000 in the days before the Pittsburgh shooting, when President Trump and others were blaming Soros without evidence for undocumented immigration. It was around that time that the Pittsburgh shooter demonized Soros on social media before committing the attack. During the racial justice protests this spring, there were uh, half a million tweets about Soros in one day. Similarly, comments on 4chan about Kushner and Trump spiked around the time of Trump's bombing of Syria in March 2017, and then experienced another bump when Trump moved the U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. The implications 
was that Kushner, a Jew, was behind the decisions to bomb Syria and move the embassy, and that Trump is controlled by Jews. Anti-Semitism is becoming extremely prominent in politically extreme communities, Finkelstein said. It gives them a critical edge, and the result is that it makes them more insidious and better organized. Russian trolls, Finkelstein said, are especially willing to demonize whichever Jewish figure is most likely to rile people. Around the Syria attack, Russian trolls mentioned Kushner on Twitter nearly 600 times. When the Charlottesville protest happened months later, there were 1,200 tweets from Russian trolls about Soros. When there's a foreign intervention, they say that Israel and Kushner are controlling the behavior of the United States in the foreign arena, said Finkelstein, adding that when unrest or a terror attack occur within the United States, Russian trolls advance the notion that that's Soros, that's an outsider who's trying to agitate things internally. He added, they're willing to use whatever tune of anti-Semitism is most adaptive to exacerbate ethnic tensions. Russian trolls, the Network Contagion Research Institute found, account for a minority of anti-Semitic posts online. Most posts are written by actual people, but the Russian trolls and other anti-Semites feed off of each other, sharing and spreading the same noxious ideas. State actors are now working essentially in tandem with extremist communities, Finkelstein said. They're sharing context. They're mutually inspiring one another. Over the past few months, platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok have taken steps to ban Holocaust denial, the anti-Semitic pro-Trump conspiracy QAnon, and other forms of hate. Finkelstein called QAnon a force multiplier for mainstreaming Jewish hatred in the form of conspiracy, but said banning anti-Semitic invective should not be the only answer. On one hand, he said, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories will originate on extremist sites like 4chan and then migrate to mainstream networks like Twitter. But too many bans could drive extremists to spend more time on their own platform and in an increasingly toxic environment of hate that could motivate violent attacks. The Pittsburgh shooter, he noted, posted his hateful messages on the far-right platform Gab. Getting kicked off mainstream platforms is like a badge of honor for people who are disaffected with grievances, and that's like a cesspool for anti-Semitism, he said. The Institute hopes that its latest report will show tech platforms what to look for and when to look for it. If an event is approaching that may widen social rifts, for example, that would be the time to look out for tweets about Soros. The report aims to help platforms catch anti-Semitic rhetoric right when it's posted or monitor for it before it goes up. If platforms let the hate go unchecked, Finkelstein said, tropes about Soros, Kushner, or Israel could easily lead people to more explicit anti-Semitic ideas as well as violence. The hatred is structural. They don't even have to realize it's happening, he said. If you have a billion people screaming about how Soros is trying to take over the world with the Rothschilds, you are an inch away from saying Jews. We acclimate people towards condoning things that are increasingly less stomachable. Floridians can now stand with Israel even while stuck in traffic. A graphic designer from Boca Raton has come up with the winning design in a contest to create a specialty license plate saying that Florida stands with Israel. Daniel Ackerman's blue, white, and orange design was chosen among more than 100 submissions in a competition sponsored by the Israeli-American Council, the group said in a news release. 
The bipartisan, uh, the bipartisan slate of four lawmakers who initiated the law passed this year, launching the competition, along with Gabe Groisman, the mayor of Ball Harbor, served as the judges. The concept focuses on Florida's state flower, the orange blossom. Ackerman said in the release, The beauty of this flower, contrasted against the Star of David in the form of a tropical leaf, represents the Florida-Israel relationship and the fruit this partnership bears, ultimately benefiting both states. The symbol interacts with the two waves on top and bottom giving nod to the Israeli flag, Florida's sandy tourist destinations, and Israel's deserts in bloom. The plate will go into production once 3,000 applicants have paid for pre-sale vouchers. Proceeds will go in part to Hatzalah of Miami-Dade, an organization of volunteer paramedics. Dawn Johnson, a Republican just elected a state representative in New Hampshire, apologized for sharing a post from the neo-Nazi website, The Daily Stormer. I have removed the report as it came from a source I do not agree with, and thanks to a couple of people who showed me, she said. Johnson declined to comment to In-Depth New Hampshire about why she was reading material posted on a neo-Nazi website. Johnson, who also serves on the school board in Laconia, and who has backed President Donald Trump's false claims that he won the presidential election, had posted on Facebook an image of her failed attempt to post the Daily Stormer article, which advanced a debunked theory that a man close to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp was killed as part of a conspiracy to hand the election to President-elect Joe Biden. When you try to share truth, Facebook says, Nope, we will not allow it, she wrote. A Daily, Daily Stormer is a racist and anti-Semitic website run by Andrew Anglin, who is being sued by a Jewish family in Montana who claimed he encouraged his followers to harass them. And next from JTA, Hungary calls European Union's ruling against kosher slaughter a disgrace by Kanan Lipschitz. Hungary's Deputy Prime Minister called Thursday's ruling by the European Union's highest court in favor of banning kosher slaughter a disgrace, setting up the first public international clash over the landmark decision. Yesterday's ruling by the European Court of Justice upholding a ban on kosher ritual slaughter in Belgium is a disgrace to the religious freedom and security of the European Jewish community, and is yet one more sign of the total collapse of our traditional Judeo-Christian value system, said Solt Semjan, the head of the right-wing Christian Democratic People's Party, a coalition partner of Prime Minister Viktor Orban's ruling Fidesz Party. In the ruling on a petition by several Jewish and Muslim groups, the court said two arguments, or rather two governments in Belgium, did not violate European Union civil rights provisions, with their 2019 bans on the production of meat from animals that were not stunned before they were killed. The lack of stunning is a requirement of the process for observant Jews and Muslims. Hungary's white right-wing government, whose critics say has encouraged anti-Semitism, clashes often with the EU's institutions on multiple issues, including on illegal immigration into the bloc by asylum seekers and others. Rabbi Menachem Margolin, chairman of the Brussels-based European Jewish Association, welcomed Semgen's intervention, saying Hungary has consistently shown action to match its words. The ban had had a devastating impact on the Belgian Jewish community, creating food shortages made worse by the pandemic, said Rabbi Shlomo Kovis, 
leader of the EMIH Federation of Jewish Communities in Hungary. A slaughterhouse owned by EMIH in Hungary has mitigated the shortages in Belgium. Jewish community leaders and, organizer, and organizations have sharply protested the ban. European Jewish Congress President Moshe Kanter has called it tragic and said it tells Jews that our practices are no longer welcome and therefore it is a short step from telling Jews that we are no longer welcome. In Western Europe, liberals and right-wing nationalists have united over the past few years to oppose the ritual slaughter of animals and the circumcision of boys. Liberal circles cite animal and child welfare concerns while nationalists perceive the customs foreign imports that need to be limited to mitigate the perceived efforts of the arrival of millions of Muslims to Europe in recent years. Jews have strict laws to make the slaughter of animals as quick and painless as possible, requiring a trained professional slaughterer and extremely sharp and large knives, among other requirements. Advocates of the custom reject claims that it is crueler than other methods. The ruling by the EU court, which is based in Luxembourg, is likely to encourage other European courts to enact similar bans, warned Dutch Chief Rabbi Benjamin Jacobs. The Netherlands Parliament banned ritual slaughter in 2011, but the Dutch Senate reversed the ban the following year, citing the need to observe freedom of worship for minorities. If the ban is reintroduced in the Netherlands, Orthodox Jews will leave, Jacobs said in a statement. And next from JTA, the Auschwitz Museum director prefers to stay out of controversial debates, but he's worried about this one in Israel by Kanan Lipchitz. As the head of Poland's Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and Museum, Peter Kowinski and his staff rarely intervene in matters that don't concern their imposing institution. They even sit out debates that do concern them, such as Poland's controversial outlawing in 2018 of rhetoric that blames the country for Nazi crimes. But Kowinski decided to speak out this week about the controversy surrounding Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to appoint as its head Effie Etam, a hawkish retired general and politician who, a growing number of critics say, has used racist rhetoric against Arab, Israelis, and Palestinians. I am concerned about the future of this institution, Kowinski told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency about Yad Vashem in a telephone interview last week. Kowinski, a 48-year-old historian who is not Jewish and has headed the Auschwitz State Museum since 2006, is not alone in expressing concern about Yad Vashem. Hundreds of Holocaust survivors and scholars have protested the plan which has made known which was made known in August to have a Tom, a former leader of the settler movement in Israel, succeed Avner Shalev, a former general and government cultural official, who is retiring after serving in the role since nineteen ninety-three. Opponents of the appointment, including seven hundred and fifty scholars who signed a petition protesting it, have cited what they call the hateful rhetoric of Etam, a 68-year-old hero of Israel's 1973 war and the famous Antebi aberration in Uganda. Etam advocates uh, cite his managerial and leadership credentials and the fact that Yad Vashem has had controversial heads in the past, including the late secularist politician Tommy Lapid, who had said that lying comes easier to women, and that Yitzhak Rabin's cabinet was a Judenrat, 
the name for the Jewish governing councils of Nazi ghettos that is often used to imply Jewish collaboration with anti-Semites. In A. Tom's case, the hate speech allegations refer to a speech A. Tom made in 2006 in which he said about West Bank Palestinians that some of them may be able to stay under some conditions, but most will have to go away. He also said we will need to make a decision which is to expel the Arab Israelis from the political system. We have raised a fifth column, a group of classic traitors. He also said in 2011, in an interview, that de facto autonomy for Arab Israelis is an existential threat characterized by stealth, and stealthy threats by nature are like cancer. Last week, Tom responded for the first time to his critics, saying he does not wish to see Palestinians driven out of the West Bank, though he had added that he could see such an expulsion happening over the course of the conflict. If war is declared on us by people, publics, or groups who seek to make Israel into an arena for terrorism, there we will fight with all of our strength, and there we, and there we will prevail, he said. Expulsion of the Arabs of Judea and Samaria is not a goal, it is an outcome. He also said, when the allegations against me are false and baseless, there's no need to respond. My connection to the Holocaust is deep and alive. It's how I grew up and raised my children, grandchildren, and soldiers. Kowinski called the leadership of Yad Vashem an internal Israeli decision and declined to name specifically a Tom whose mother survived the Holocaust as a fighter in the Red Army but lost her parents in the genocide in what is now Latvia. Still, Kowinski said that whoever succeeds Shalev needs to maintain Shalev's achievement of positioning Yad Vashem as an international research authority rather than merely a national museum and as an international center for education on the Holocaust. The outcry over Atom's appointment is making Kowinski doubt whether Atom is the man for the job, he conceded. I am hearing the voices of many different institutions around the world. I don't want to focus on any names and focus instead on what the problem is, the reason it was very criticized by some very important partners in such a fashion, he said. The protest shows that maybe the roadmap to choosing the right person is not exactly understood. The decision to speak out about Yad Vashem is part of a growing willingness on Kowinski's part to intervene in matters outside his professional purview, said the father of three who divides his time between Warsaw and the museum near Krakow, some 150 miles south of the capital. Earlier this year, Kowinski took another bold step, heading an international activist campaign for the first time. It was on behalf of Omar Farouk, a 13-year-old Nigerian boy sentenced to 10 years in prison by a Muslim Sharia court for things the boy had allegedly said during a conversation with a friend who reported him to the authorities. In an open letter to Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari, who had visited Auschwitz in 2018, Kowinski wrote that Farouk should be released. If that's impossible, Kowinski added, then he and other activists volunteered to divide the sentence between them and serve it for Farouk. As the director of a Polish state museum built on a Nazi camp where children were imprisoned and murdered, I cannot remain indifferent to this disgraceful sentence to humanity, Kowinski wrote at the time. None of it came to fruition, but it was unusual for Kowinski to speak out on the issue, especially because he is known to believe that Holocaust museums should generally stay narrowly focused on their subject. 
In speaking to JTA, Kowinski singled out for criticism Belgium's Kazerne Dossen Holocaust Museum, which is facing flack for its universalist approach to its subject matter. This year, it also endorsed a prominent promoter of the Boycott Israel movement. Kowinski also disapproves of the recent decision by the Holocaust Memorial Resource and Education Center in Florida to include an exhibit about George Floyd, a black man who was killed by a white, uh, white policeman in Minnesota earlier this year. It's not the best way, Kowinski said. We have to stay very, very strongly on the basic message of all those institutions. It's not an issue to compare everything. It's not the issue to introduce everything in everything. The Holocaust informs our knowledge about other tragedies, Kowinski said, but museums about it shouldn't be creating a melting pot of everything in one place. His growing tendency to speak out on issues beyond his museum's scope are perfectly in line with this view, he said. I'm not saying Holocaust historians shouldn't speak out about what happens in the world. On the contrary, just that Holocaust museums aren't the appropriate place to deal with things that are not part of the Holocaust. Kowinski has opted for more activist approaches because the world is becoming more and more difficult, and our level of responsibility and cooperation must grow accordingly, he said. Shalev's ability to make Yad Vashem an international center for education against hatred against this background is also why I admire what he has done, Kowinski said. Immediately after his appointment, Shalev founded Yad Vashem's International School for Holocaust Studies, a pioneer institution whose programs for educators from all over the world have set the standard in the field. He has also advanced the collection of individuals' names of Holocaust victims by Yad Vashem, reaching five million of them that are now accessible on the memorial's website in six languages. The collection of names of rescuers of Jews, the righteous among the nations, also received a major push under Shalev. A third of Poland's 7,112 righteous were recognized under Shalev, as well as nearly half of Ukraine's 2,659 rescuers. This push has had its own controversy, critics said. Some recipients of the honor should never have received it, and other rescuers were left out of the process despite ample evidence of their heroism. At Auschwitz, Kowinski has also placed a focus on education. He has also headed massive restoration efforts, ranging from fixing decaying barracks to old suitcase buckles, obtaining many millions of dollars for these projects from multiple governments and donors. Under Kowinski, educational projects have expanded dramatically thanks to the opening of new training programs for historians, teachers, and most recently even journalists. Back in Israel, some critics of Kowinski's believe he is neglecting to speak out on issues that are central to Auschwitz's mission, including the legislation by Poland's government, which is ultimately Kowinski's employer, since the museum is state-owned, that bans blaming the Polish nations for crimes against humanity. One of the justifications put forward for this law was the mislabeling of Auschwitz, which the Germans built as the Polish death camp. Under Kowinski, the Auschwitz Museum took on a key role in correcting journalists and others on this issue, chiefly through the museum's Twitter account, which has more than a million followers. But the law meant to address this problem provoked an outcry, including by Yad Vashem historians who said that the legislation by Poland's right-wing ruling party, Law and Justice, risks Holocaust distortion. 
is an impediment to free expression and research about the Holocaust and prevents a free exchange of ideas about thousands of Polish Nazi collaborators. After several weeks of silence on this matter, Kowinski issued a carefully worded statement that paled in comparison to the scathing criticism leveled at the legislation abroad. To stamp out the hideous term Polish camps, this law must be understood primarily abroad, he said. Otherwise, we are creating a tool that will be ineffective by definition, Kowinski said. He has also set out the debate on a controversy surrounding another Polish state museum on the Holocaust at Sobibor. The museum has decided to build a monument on grounds littered with human remains, and scholars say the area may also contain archaeological findings that are in danger of being damaged by the construction. It would behoove the director of the Auschwitz Museum to stay out of debates outside Poland and focus on issues inside it, and chiefly the dangerous limits placed on Holocaust education and civil rights by his employer, Rabbi Avraham Krieger, the director of Israel's Shem Olam Holocaust Institute for Education, Documentation and Research, told JTA. Krieger, whose institute focuses on religious life and the Holocaust, defended a Times appointment as no less worthy than any other characterizing the opposition to it as fear that Yad Vashem will return to its rightful mission of examining what the Holocaust has meant to the Jewish people, its victims, and not be converted into some shapeless universal value. Kowinski defended his decision to stay out of the Holocaust legislation debate. I was not consulted about the law. I had no part in the law. Now why do I have to take the museum into a political decision that it had no hand in creating, he said. It was not an educational project, research project. It is strictly a political project. I don't want to enter into politics with the museum. Why then is Kowinski wading into the Yad Vashem controversy? I'm not trying to influence any decision. This is something for Israelis to decide, he reiterated. All I am saying is that Yad Vashem, under the leadership of Abner Shalev, has achieved a status which it didn't always have of being an international authority on the Holocaust. Now Israelis need to decide if it stays this way or goes back to being an entity that is limited to Israel's national perspective. And next from JTA, over 50,000 Israelis have already, uh, have already visited the United Arab Emirates since peace deal signing. Over 50,000 Israelis have visited the United Arab Emirates since the recent normalization pact between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, according to a report this week in the Washington Post. That number is the result of only two weeks of open commercial flights between the countries, which agreed to open the diplomatic and tourism floodgates in a historic agreement signed in August. Tens of thousands more were expected to visit over the Hanukkah holiday, according to the Post. The report also said that the Jewish Community Center in Dubai, the UAE capital, is increasing its staff from 5 to about 30 employees, and that nearly 150 restaurants have begun serving kosher food. The center is planning to build a mikvah befitting Dubai's luxury standards. It will probably be the nicest mikvah in the world, said Rabbi Mendel Dukman, who works for the JCC. Israel's normalization agreement with the UAE, which preceded others and uh, signed with Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, was a watershed moment for the Jewish state's relationship with the Arab world. Until August, Israel only had formal relations with two Arab countries, Egypt and Jordan. And next from JTA, India's Jewtown 
only has a handful of Jews left, but Jewish traditions and landmarks remain, by Christabel Lobo. Kochi, India. Take a walk down this coastal city's Jew Street today and you'll find bustling Kashmiri storefronts selling Persian antiques, pashmina shawls, and traditional Islamic handicrafts, a stark contrast to the neighborhood's heyday when every household was Jewish. There are only two people left in Jewtown, said Shalva Weil, a senior researcher at the Seymour Fox School of Education at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a leading figure on the Jewish communities of India, one who spends most of her time in Los Angeles and one other. Once a vibrant community of approximately 3,000 at its peak in the 1950s, only a handful of elderly Jews remain here now in a city of 677,000. According to Weil, there really is no community in Kochi anymore. You won't find more than five or ten Jews. Unlike other dwindling Jewish communities around the world, the Jews of Kochi did not leave their country due to persecution or hardship. Rather, it was the creation of the State of Israel in 1948 that attracted many from the mostly Orthodox community to emigrate and start a new life in the Jewish homeland. For Essie Sassoon, a retired doctor of obstetrics and gynecology who initially went to Israel as a medical volunteer during the Yom Kippur War in 1973, one of the main reasons to stay on was family. When my sister and her family left for Israel, I felt that I didn't have any close relations left in India. I was very attached to my sister, she said. It was a very difficult decision because I love India very much, and I was in a very good position in India, and I was progressing, but it happened. Some of Sassoon's fondest memories revolve around her childhood spent celebrating the numerous Jewish traditions and festivities as an Orthodox Cochini Jew in the southern India port city. From the blowing of the shofar inside the 452-year-old Paradesi Synagogue on Rosh Hashanah to the annual Simchat Torah celebrations, an enormously popular three-day affair, both in the narrow lanes, homes, and synagogues of Jewtown, Holidays were celebrated with equal gusto by Kochi's Jews and their non-Jewish neighbors. Primarily situated between Kerala's stunning labyrinth backwaters and the verdant shores of the Malabar coast, Kochi, or Cochin as it was known until 1996, has long been a crossroads of culture, diversity, and trade. As the epicenter of the subcontinent's renowned spice trade, the town attracted traders from far-flung locations, including members of India's oldest Jewish communities. The first Jews were believed to have arrived in the first century BCE as sailors on King Solomon's boats. They settled in the ancient port city of Muziris, now modern-day Kadungalur, 28 miles north of Kochi. In his 2019 book, One Heart, Two Worlds, The Story of the Jews of Kochi, historian K.S. Matthew describes a thriving community first welcomed by then-Hindu ruler King Sri Parkavan Ivra. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.